Did you hear? Mookie Betts got traded. I'll ask our Baseball HQ radio news analysts, Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, from BaseballHQ.com, about that story and a whole lot more, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 7th. It's show number two of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have a great Friday news and notes edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols covers the National League, including new Dodgers, Mookie Betts and David Price, as well as Aaron Nola and a sleeper candidate in Colorado. And Ray Murphy will have news from the American League, including the aftermath of the Betts deal in Boston. Kenta Maeda in Minnesota, and an elite skills closer who might not be an elite fantasy closer. I'll also have a new commentary, the three-minute warning, talking about player picks I made last November. It's another Friday News and Notes edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Pitchers and catchers next week, we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday news and comment edition, our Market Watch player news reports, Ray Murphy on deck with the American League news, and leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. Good to be ready to start the season. It is. Uh, before we get rolling, I know you're in a couple of drafts. Uh, you haven't started yet? Haven't started draft yet. Just trying to trying to do draft prep at this point. Yeah, that's the. In a lot of ways, it's the most fun time of the year is doing the prep. You know, I love doing the draft and I love playing the game, but just thinking about baseball in such detail because you're preparing for a draft, boy, nothing better. I'll, I'll tell you what. And we have lots to think about. Just in the last couple of days, uh, the big news, of course, Nick uh, Mookie Betts gets traded from Boston to the Dodgers. Who would have even imagined this uh, last year? Uh, I'll talk in a few minutes with Ray Murphy about the fallout in Boston. But while the acquisition, Nick, to me, makes the Dodgers look even stronger it does seem to create a traffic jam in the outfield and in the batting order even though they traded outfielder Alex Verdugo away Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Dodgers for playing time today at baseballhq.com so let's work through this starting with what's going to happen with Mookie Betts immediately in Los Angeles Betts probably takes over in right field and most likely the leadoff spot in the lineup Uh, half of his games will be in a friendlier home run venue and a terrific offense could be even more runs scored for Betts than the 135 he scored last year. Also, L.A. is a better home run park. Fenway actually plays slightly negative for right-handed hitter home runs, so uh, Chavez Ravine is slightly positive. So maybe a little boosted home runs for Mookie, although with a player that good, it may not make that much difference. Yeah, that's true, right? Uh, these park effects affect everybody, but if you're a guy who hits home runs anyway, it, the, the marginal gain is probably going to be a little smaller. Betts scored 135 runs, you mentioned. That's the most in the rotisserie era since Jeff Bagwell in 2000 scored 152. Can you imagine picking up 152 runs in a rotisserie league? Goodness me, uh, what, a, what a tremendous benefit. Uh, Jock Thompson also referred to some ripple effects in the Los Angeles lineup. What are they? Now, the main outcome here could be less moving around for some Dodgers. Uh, Baseball HQ now projects Cody Bellinger as the primary center fielder and Max Muncy, who bounced around the infield last year, looking more like the primary first baseman. The Dodgers traded Jock Peterson across town to the Angels, so playing time losers look like uh, infield outfield utilities Chris Taylor and Enrique Hernandez, neither of whom look like 400 at-bat locks anymore. Although we've got to remember, these, these things we projected at the start of the season all depend on everybody staying healthy. Uh, and that's always an interesting, uh, throws an interesting wrench into things as the season progresses. Yeah, and unfortunately, Nick, we can't predict that with any certainty. Uh, you know, we say, oh, this guy's uh, injury prone, and then he plays 150 games, like Giancarlo Stanton had that rap for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden he didn't have it, and now he has it again, so it, you really can't plan for it. Uh, we know A.J. Pollock's going to start in left field. He's a bit of an injury risk. They're going to have Justin Turner and Corey Seager going to be back on the left side of the infield. That still seems to me, Nick, to leave an opening at second base, and I'm starting to wonder if the Dodgers might be clearing a path for super prospect Gavin Lux to start the season at second. It sure looks like they're at least giving him an open shot at winning the role in spring training. 
Um, and I mean, of course, we never know how that's going to go. If he flames out, we might still see Taylor and Hernandez getting added at bats. But if it does work out, boy, Gavin Lux looked really good last year in a, in a short run uh, at the end of the season there. I think Gavin Lux, if he gets the job, and we know that he's got the job when we draft, I think Gavin Lux could shoot up six rounds. Oh, I think so, definitely. Gavin Lux looks like a... If Gavin Lux uh, is able to produce from the get-go what we think he can produce, uh, he's, he's going to be very, very valuable in fantasy. Now, the Dodgers also got David Price in the deal, but at the same time, they had to trade Kenta Maeda to the Twins as part of that three-team bets trade. And they also traded Ross Stripling in a separate deal to Los Angeles Angels. Uh, so where does Price fit in in this now-rebuilt Los Angeles rotation? Well, and don't forget that the Dodgers lost uh, Hume Den Ryu's 183 innings of sub-2.50 ERA in free agency. And they decided not to re-sign Rich Hill. So uh, uh, Price is 34. He's coming off a career-worst numbers, a 4.28, 3.89 ERA, XERA, over 170 innings pitched, and fueled by declining velocity and 46 more days on uh, on the injured list. Now averaged just over 120 innings pitched over his past three seasons. Uh, is expected to offer much more in L.A., particularly given the Dodgers' depth. But there's a flip side to that. His 10.7 DOM, 12% swinging strike rate, 4.0 command, say there's something left in the tank there. And in fact, we saw some some actually improvement in some of those his metrics uh, last year. So um, if he's healthy, Price will join Alex Wood behind Walker, Bueller, and Clayton Kershaw in the opening day rotation. Uh, maybe Alex Wood and Julio Urias at the back end. Uh, also, L.A. has a stable of talented starting pitchers to sort out through in February and March, so don't sleep on Dustin May or Tony Gonsolin. And more of a long shot would be Dennis Santana, 23-year-old right-hander with a high strikeout profile offset by some control issues. The other thing to think about at this point, too, is, is prices moving to a much better ballpark for pitchers than he had in Boston and moving from the American League to the National League. So if you check the uh, Baseball HQ website, you'll see at this point uh, Price is projected at a 3.48 ERA uh, and and Certainly, that's nothing to sneeze at. So, uh, more moves could be likely in the, with the Dodgers, of course, as the as this crowded situation continues. And so, uh, stay tuned. Yeah, that's the other thing I'm wondering about too, Nick. Is the likelihood that the Dodgers might not be done dealing? They might look at that rotation, for instance, and say, you know, we need to do something here because uh, it's not as solid as we'd like it to be. On the other hand, between what they've got at the top of the rotation some of the sort of intriguing question marks starting with Price and moving backwards in the rotation, and then some of these young guys that are sort of jockeying position and getting lined up. I, I don't know that the Dodgers necessarily need to do anything, so that part of it's going to be interesting to watch as well. Yeah, well, indeed. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, well, and a lot may, they may, may wait and see how some, how some of this fold, unfolds in spring training and how these guys are looking to start the year. So uh, they have certainly have some depth to deal from, if they want to make more trades. And of course, they could make a trade at the deadline too. It could be that they're sort of just lining themselves up for a playoff run. They don't need to do that right now because they look like a heavy favorite to win the division, even as they're now constituted. Right, very definitely. They, they should, they're definitely a heavy favorite and uh, they don't need to make other moves uh, since acquiring Mookie Betts. Yeah, they're going to score runs, that's for sure. Uh, Marcelo Zuna, uh, outfielder, signed with Atlanta in the offseason. Uh, Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. And Greg Pyron wrote a facts and flukes piece about Marcelo Zuna as well. Uh, what's the general outlook for uh, Marcelo Zuna as a, an Atlanta? Greg Pyron uh, points out that uh, while his batting average fell very sharply in 2019, his contact rate remained in line with a lifetime 77% contact rate actually hit more line drives than ever, also hit the ball with lots of authority and impressive stat cast batted ball metrics included a 12.6% barrel rate, uh, double the MLB average. So Ozuna also had a hard hit rate in the 96th percentile, average exit velocity in the 93rd percentile, walked a lot more than ever in 2019, and that's a sign of potential power growth. So uh, we're not sure about the stolen bases. Uh, Ozuna has uh, had 12 in 2019. Greg noted that he's been successful on 17 of his last uh, or 15 of his last 17 attempts that's an 88 percent uh, stolen base percentage so he could get some stolen bases this year five to eight stolen bases in 2020 
Yeah, I read that uh, analysis with great interest because I'm in a couple of mixed leagues this year, so I got to bone up on those national leaguers. I wonder if Ozuna could even get more stolen bases than that, uh, frankly. Uh, I think it's possible. I like guys like Ozuna who have showed, I think he had a 30 or $31 season a couple of years ago. And, you know, we, we're projecting high teens, low 20, something like that in dollar value. But anytime you have a guy like that who's got all these skills and all that has to happen for is for all of it to fall into place, and all of a sudden maybe he gets back to thirty dollars. And if you spend seventeen, you're you're sitting pretty. And even if he doesn't, he's probably pretty good for the seventeen you're going to bid. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, I've I've got Ozuna on a couple of teams, and uh, he, he's one of those guys that you, you can't you can't expect him to get those, that thirty dollars season he had two years ago. But if all you're paying for is seventeen dollars, that thirty dollars season may still be in the window. And I think you're right. He's got a got a fairly solid floor. Right, and and even if he doesn't reach all the way back to thirty, if you pay seventeen and he gets halfway there and gets twenty five, you're still sitting pretty. Uh, um, it sounds like the the upside for Ozuna is, is offset by a possible downside for some other guys in Atlanta. I'm thinking, of course, Acuna's a lock in outfield. Uh, they got Marquecas and Ender and Ender Inciarte hanging around, maybe the outfield situation as well. So. Austin Riley's outfield experiment looks like it's over. Uh, he was not impressive uh, with the bat after a hot start. Uh, over his last 156 at-bats, I think he had a 172 expected batting average. And listen to this, minus 56 for a base performance value. Uh, minus 56 is like legendarily bad. So Riley was a top prospect, Nick. Uh, what happens to him now? Well, Phil Hertz says the Braves are looking at him as the regular third baseman to open camp. But, but whether he can keep that job is is uh, certainly an open question. Uh, the Braves obviously uh, hope or, or think that Riley can adjust and resume be, being a top offensive threat. Uh, but Fanny's city owners should be really cautious, I think, when approaching Riley and consider a handcuff such as Johan Camargo. Uh, I'm not at all uh, certain that Riley is going to produce. No, I think he's got to fall into the category of almost an outright gamble at this point and maybe you get him if you've got a deep reserve list and and hope for the best i guess in a in a national league only league where you got to be way less choosy about these kinds of things the play is try not to put yourself in a position where austin riley's your only option at third yeah i think that would be the that would be definitely the play i mean he's the kind of guy if he's your third baseman you better have a very solid strong backup because uh, it, it could be a very up-and-down kind of season for Austin Riley. We know the talent's there. It might show up for one month or two months or three months or maybe the entire season, or it might not show up at all. The other possibility, of course, uh, Austin Riley retains outfield eligibility from last year, so it doesn't cost you the third-base slot. If you do, if you do want to roll the dice, uh, you see something in spring training, say, or uh, there's some news that comes out that makes you more confident in Austin Riley, draft him as an outfielder. That way he's easier to replace, at least. Uh, let's move on to Aaron Nola, rang up a real disappointing clunker season in 2019, Nick. And the question, of course, is whether Nola can rebound, and it doesn't look from the ADPs like a lot of people believe that that's somewhere between possible and likely. Uh, Greg Pyron, again, covered Nola's performance in that facts and flukes analysis. What does Greg Pyron say the smart bet is here as far as Aaron Nola goes? Well, Nola got off to a very rough start in 2019, and he never recovered. A uh, Overall, a 3.87 ERA and 202 innings pitched. And those aren't things to sneeze at, but that's not what the money you paid Aaron Nola to, to produce for you. Right. He did look better for a while in the second half, uh, 3.03 ERA, 2.9 control, 1.05 whip, and 110 innings from June to August, but then cratered again in September uh, with 28 innings pitched of a 6.51 ERA. So we saw some of the old Aaron Nola there for part of the season. Uh, Pyron says there's some reason to believe there may be some better days ahead. His control sold to a career worst last season, but his, his uh, ball percentage, 2.3 expected control, and his previous history provide some reason for optimism. Um, overall, Dom Spike wasn't fully backed by swinging strike rate. He still missed plenty of bats, especially in the second half. A full Dom rebound is probably a tall order, but something between 2018 and 2019 is something uh, that we, we really could expect. Also worth noting that his velocity improved throughout the year, finished at a career high 92.9 miles per hour for 2019. That's a full half mile per hour over uh, 2018. 
the the advanced metrics are always interesting, and we're getting more and more used to using them uh, as we do our player analysis. But some of them, in Aaron Nola's case, were not so encouraging. Yeah, that's true. He allowed more hard contact than ever before, as measured by Statcast. Uh, allowed more in zone contact. So a, a lot, a lot will depend. A lot depends today in today's launch angle, home run heavy climate. The key metric to watch will be ground ball rate. If he can maintain the 50 percentish ground ball rate for the past few years, his home run per fly rate should regress from the 17% rate of last season. I mean, that was just out of line for him, and he could get back to form if that regression happens. Uh, never likely to duplicate the 2018 season, but should enjoy a bounce back. Uh, at that, though, don't expect a full recovery to 2018 levels. Bet on a, a mid-3s ERA, a 1.20 whip somewhere in there is probably the best thing to pay for. Yeah, I was really intrigued by that 17% home run per fly ball rate. I mean, here's a guy who's doing exactly what you want. He's get putting half the balls on the ground. And now we understand that guys who give up a lot of ground balls are going to have higher hit rates than guys who give up a lot of fly balls because more ground balls are going to find their way through. But the the reward for taking that is there's not going to be a lot of fly balls, therefore there's not going to be a lot of home runs. Except in this case, there's very few high balls, but still a lot of home runs. And I, I think the key thing is going to be, uh, for Aaron Nola, can he get that home run per fly ball rate down to a more normal 10%, in which case there's a lot of upside here. But if he can't, there isn't. And the problem is we don't know which is going to be which, especially with regard to the baseball this year, is it going to be the happy fun ball that everybody talks about, or is it going to go back to being a more uh, sedate sort of sphere? And of course, that's the question we won't have answered until the season starts, right? Or maybe we'll have it answered in spring training. But, you know, and and, and there's certainly a lot of questions that stem from the answer to that question. So, yes, uh, are we going to have last year's ball? Or are we going to have a different ball? Uh, it could make a huge difference, certainly, in a lot of people's performance. I wonder if they're going to be using the major league regular ball in spring training because that might give us a clue. But then I've read I've read in places that they're not going to use the regular season ball till the regular season. I don't know what's going to go on with that either. We'll have, certainly have to keep our eye on it to figure out what's going to how we're going to scale a lot of these questions. Uh, finally, Nick. Sam Hilliard, the outfielder in Colorado, boy, he had a terrific little part season at the end of 2019. Ryan Bloomfield included Sam Hilliard in a column called What If Full-Timers? The idea being look, to look at players who have intriguing part-timer stats that look really interesting if you prorate them out to 600 plate appearances. What do you think uh, and what does Ryan Bloomfield think about Sam Hilliard as a, a guy to get after? Well, unfortunately, he won't come super cheap because he had a late-season barrage and and uh, two, 273 batting average, seven home runs, two stolen bases, and 77 at-bats. And when that happens in uh, in late August and in September, uh, then you've got the allure of Coors Field. People are jumping on it thinking there's ready for a breakout. He probably starts the year as the team's fourth outfielder, uh, but the Colorado outfield has various issues. David Dahl is an, has enough health grade. Uh, Colorado might finally decide that Ian Desmond is a sunk cost and that and then you've got Charlie Blackman well into his 30s so given all of that it seemed like Hilliard should find a lot of playing time and could he eventually replace Ian Desmond as the starter yeah I think there's pathways to playing time here uh, the problem is I think right now we look at him as a sleeper of sorts and I think if we drafted tomorrow or soon that we'd be able to pick up Sam Hilliard relatively late but as spring training goes on and more and more people start thinking about it and hearing about it I have a I have a strong hunch that uh, Sam Hilliard's going to lose his sleeper status. Uh, Stephen Nickrand, the Batting Buyer's Guide columnist, also talked about Hilliard way back in December in a column he titled September Base Performance Value Leaders. What was Stephen's take on on uh, Sam Hilliard? Stephen reported that Hilliard's power was backed by a, an elite 176 expected power index. And his 121 speed reminds us that he owns a home run stolen base package displayed at multiple levels in the minors. A lot of swing and miss in his approach. 69% contact rate, that's going to limit his batting average. But strong outfield defense, multi-category position makes him a premium sleeper. And in the league, one league that I play in, we've got a pinch hitter spot that doesn't count batting average. So, you know, you got a guy like Hilliard who can hit the ball out of the park, that can be, and you don't have to count that 220 batting average, that's worth something. And I, I should say, too, that uh, guys who strike out a lot, 
have a second problem, which is they don't amass counting stats in proportion to the home runs that they generate. We usually expect, you know, a guy hits 30 home runs, he's going to drive in 100 just because of all the home runs. But if he strikes out a lot, he's missing out on the uh, on the RBI opportunities that he doesn't hit home runs in. And uh, for that reason, you need to temper your expectations. Guys who strike out don't get on base, and not getting on base is a problem for counting stats. Right. Absolutely. It is. And so you're right. You've got to, got to take that in, into consideration when you've got a very low contact rate. I know guys who, uh, whose whole strategy is built around maximizing the batting average on their team because they just believe that everything else will follow from it. Lots, lots of times on base, uh, on base percentage also, uh, but batting average, if you're putting the ball in play, good things happen. If you strike out, nothing good happens. Nick, great start to the 2020 season. Glad to have you aboard again. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week and all during the season. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, we'll have news analysis from the American League with Ray Murphy. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to tell you about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Facts and Flukes, analyst Brandon Cruz looks at five 2019 player performances, including Andrew Benintendi, Kyle Seeger, and Lourdes Guriel Jr. In Rotisserie Gaming, analyst Ryan Bloomfield has a film review, his own portrayal of a drafter in the 2020 Labor Mix Draft. And in Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst and former HQ Radio superstar Jock Thompson looks through the American League West, including the Angels rotation, the Athletics outfield, and all the other division teams as well. And those are just three articles among literally dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. That player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasts in playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis by former big league general manager Brad Kuhlman in the Market Pulse. We have injury analysis in the Big Hurt. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, it's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And don't forget, if you use the promo code PATRICK, all capital letters, I think, at checkout, you can get 10% off any subscription or book offered at the BaseballHQ.com website. Those three stories I just mentioned would be worth the investment all by themselves, and getting them for 10% off makes them all the better value. Check out today with the promo code PATRICK and get 10% off your investment in winning fantasy baseball. Here comes Roger Maris. Standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside, ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two, that one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hit, deep to right. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for news from the American League. And here with the stories and analysis is Baseball HQ co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Patrick. I'm uh, excited to fill this role this year. Yes, it's going to be a lot of fun. uh, And we uh, have a lot of news to start with uh, Of course, the big news of the week has been the trade. Boston has been rumored to be shopping Mookie Betts. He's now traded to Los Angeles, and the Red Sox get back Alex Verdugo. Let's start with Alex Verdugo. Uh, You're up there in Boston. What role do you see him playing in the 2020 Red Sox lineup? Uh, so he looks like he's going to slot in the right field with, uh, you know, right in Betts' spot there. I suppose in the spring they might reconfigure the outfield and put Benintendi or Bradley and Wright or you know, figure out the configuration with those three guys. But he slides, slots into Betts' opening for sure. The more interesting question is really the lineup. I haven't seen 
clear guidance about that yet. Obviously, Betts spent most of his time here as a leadoff hitter. Uh, Verdugo doesn't look like quite the prototypical leadoff hitter that uh, you know Betts was, at least in terms of a high OBP. Um, the, the the other candidate for the Red Sox, you know, could be Benintendi, could be Bogarts. The combination of uh, you know playable sprint speed, you know, stolen base ability, and on base percentage for those guys is probably more favorable to the top spot than it is for Verdugo. So I, I'm guessing Verdugo is going to end up slotting somewhere around sixth to start, and my guess is probably Benintendi leads off, but maybe Bogarts. Yeah, I was looking at the situation, and I thought Bogarts looked like a real good candidate. He walks a fair amount, uh, 384 on base percentage last year. His sprint speed, I don't think he gets enough credit for his speed, uh, 75th percentile, and double-digit stolen bases uh, from 2015 to 17. Of course, they move him down the lineup. The speed starts to become less of a factor in his overall game, but I think it's something they might consider. I like Benintendi as well, though. Uh, in general, Ray, when you lose an offensive producer like Betts, it creates a ripple effect, not just at the top of the order, not just replacing his slot, but there's kind of follow-on effects uh, all the way up and down the lineup. And I'm wondering how much you think, if at all, we should downgrade um, J.D. Martinez, Rafael Devers, the run producers, because of the uh, absence of bets to drive in. Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, the funny thing about the lineup question, of course, is you know we don't have any answers for that yet, mostly because there's no manager to ask. So you know, just yet another thing that's uh, you know dumpster fire that's burning in Boston right now. But you're right about the downstream effects, and that's actually the biggest reason why I suspect it won't be Bogarts at leadoff because I think they need him in the middle of the order, even you know in the three or four spot in front of or behind JD Martinez. Uh, but the interesting thing about that is, from a production point of view, it might be optimal for Verdugo to end up down in, say, the six-hole anyway, because he's going to have guys like Bogarts and Martinez on base in front of him all the time. So it might just be a question of you know the shape of Verdugo's contributions and more RBIs down down in the order and uh, less runs if he's up top. Is might be might be how it shakes out. Uh, but this this lineup is still pretty decent. The holes are, you know, even without bets, the holes are, and what's going to keep them from really being good this year are much more on the pitching staff side. Well, funny you should mention that. The Red Sox also lost a chunk of their 2020 rotation because they traded away David Price. And I know Boston fans will maybe caution me that it wasn't that big of a loss, but they uh, trade David Price. It creates an opening in the pitching rotation. So whom do you expect to take Price's slot? Yeah, uh, sort of uh, the the whole village, I think, is really the only answer. Uh, you know, th- this team, I would argue pretty convincingly, did not have enough pitching to begin with even before they traded Price. You know, Price himself is coming off some offseason surgery, and it's not clear how many innings you can count on him for this year. Uh, Sale did not have offseason surgery, but he did. Uh, you know, miss a bunch of time the last the last two years, so I don't know how many things you can count on him for. Ivaldi's a health question mark. The only constant in the, in the rotation is Eduardo Rodriguez, and they have nothing but question marks after that. Now that they've freed up this money, I think they'll have to go out and get some reinforcements. Obviously, it's late in this offseason cycle, and I'm not sure that there are a lot of quality reinforcements left in free agency, but the guys who are looking for rehab cases, uh, Taiwan Walker's one that comes to mind just off the top of my head that, you know, I would imagine in the next week or so, we're going to see them sign a couple of those guys, but it's, uh, it's going to be a revolving door. The in-house options aren't great. Uh, There's Hector Velasquez who worked as a swing man last year. Mike Sharwin is a guy we mentioned in playing time today. This morning is somebody who pitched in Pawtucket last year, uh, got exposed a little bit when he came up to Boston, but may have a role here. And of course, since Hein Bloom is the general manager now, uh, you know, we've got to talk about openers and bullpen days and that sort of thing. It might be how they cobble that cobble starts together with the likes of Colton Brewer and Josh Taylor and Ryan Brazier and the like. So uh, it's going to be a revolving door, I think. The Red Sox did get Bruzdar Gatorall from uh, Minnesota as part of the three-way deal. How does he figure into the Red Sox plans, and could he find his way into the rotation? Yeah, you know, from what I understand, you know, big guy throws, <coughs> excuse me, super hard, 99 or 100. And, of course, when you see that, you know, everyone says, well, you know, his floor is as a back-end reliever. He could be a closer in a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, I, I it's not 
it, it hasn't been ruled out that he can start. So I, I would imagine, you know, given the more the higher value that gets placed on starting pitching, the Sox will take a good look at him and try to give him every opportunity to start before they sort of throw their hands up and make him a reliever. I remember the same scouting report on, uh, you know, 15 years ago on Max Scherzer. Everybody thought after he got drafted, he was going to end up in the bullpen, but the, uh, it was the Diamondbacks at the time stuck with him as a starter and obviously made that work. So that's just, uh, not to say he's Max Scherzer, but just to say what the, the benefits are of trying to t- trying to have someone hold on to the rotation opportunity for as long as you can before you give up and make them a reliever. I also read this morning that there are some health concerns on Gatterall's physical, so uh, there might be uh, you know, there might be some further news to come on that. But um, you know, I would imagine the Red Sox are going to st- if he does come to Boston, the Red Sox are going to stick him in AAA and take a long look at him as a starter and try to make that judgment about whether it's worth investing in him there. I had read in the aftermath of the coverage of the trade that uh, uh, Gatorall has. The, the issue for him as a starting pitcher is that he doesn't have a third pitch. He's got a re- really elite fastball you mentioned. He throws a, a, a good strikeout slider, but the changeup is a work in progress at best, and until he develops that third pitch, it's very tough to succeed in Major League Baseball on two pitches, even if they're well above average. So it could be that maybe he goes to AAA with the express instruction, or uh, maybe even A to get this worked out, get that third pitch going because that's what he needs to be a success as a starter. And it's hard to imagine that they would rather have him be a reliever than a starter. I'm sure they'd much rather have him in the rotation given the physical gifts. Yeah, for sure. But the, the flip side of that coin is if the Red Sox look at him or, you know, I don't know how long it'll take him take them to make that judgment. They'll certainly, as we're suggesting, give him a lot of rope. But, you know, once they assuming they flip the switch at some point and say, okay, forget it, you're a reliever, he immediately, because of the stuff and the two dominant pitches like you're talking about, has the ability to go right to the back end of the bullpen and be a you know, be a giant fantasy asset in that sense. So it's not a situation where you're going to have to wait for two or three years for him to return any value if you're in a dynasty league. He's probably going to, um, in one role or another, is probably going to start contributing, you know, I would think, the back half of this year. Another pitcher moving uh, in the deal, Kenta Maeda goes from the Dodgers not to Boston, but to Minnesota in this uh, carousel. Uh, what is his uh, outlook as a twin? Yeah, that's very interesting. A nice pickup by the twins. They've, uh, you know, they, they actually signed his former teammate, Rich Hill, uh, you know, who's rehabbing from, uh, I think, Tommy John surgery a week or so ago. And now they've picked up another former Dodger. Uh, what they're really looking for here is, I think, somebody who, uh, you know, who can uh, you know slot into the middle of that rotation and potentially start a playoff game? That's the they don't really have the caliber of starter behind Berrios that you uh, you want to trust with the ball in their hand and uh, you know not to trigger Twins fans, but you know in Yankee Stadium in October, which is the, really the problem they're trying to solve here. And Maeda might be that guy. You know he's a lot like Price. You know been managed with uh, the innings total in LA for years, and that's going to be. Uh, the, the biggest thing holding back is fantasy value is you can only really pencil them in for 140, 150 innings. And one would assume the Twins are going to manage him the same way, but they're very consistently 140, 150, very good innings. So, uh, you know, nice pickup by the Twins. And, you know, I would imagine his, uh, you know, that same fantasy value proposition stays intact here. Staying in Los Angeles, the Angels acquire in a crosstown a couple of deals. Uh, they have Jock Peterson has joined the Angels lineup. What do you think of Jock Peterson uh, over on the other side of town? Yeah, this is a pretty good spot for him. Uh, you know, if you think about you know what he was doing with the Dodgers and what the you would imagine the Angels are going to try to do with him. You know, in the lineup every day against right-handed pitching at least, and I would imagine he'll bat leadoff on those days, which is going to put him in front of Trout and Rendon, which is a pretty cool place for him to be. Uh, you know, I'm not exactly clear whether Trout and Rendon are going to bat two, three, or three, four, but you know, Rendon's but um, Peterson, you know, for 65, 70 percent of the season against the right-handed pitching is probably going to be number one in front of them, and that's a pretty darn good spot for him. They also picked up Ross Stripling as the uh, Dodgers do a big overhaul of their pitching. Uh, Ross Stripling uh, looks like he can help the Angels' rotation, which was a real weak problem for them last year. 
Yeah, the Angels, you know, it's a tough market for upper-end starting pitching. You know, obviously, earlier in the offseason, there was a lot of speculation that the Angels were going to be in on Garrett Cole, and that didn't come to pass. Um, but you know, they've gone out and done a bunch of things to try to fortify that rotation. They picked up uh, Tehran and Bundy. They've got Andrew Heaney and Griffin Canning coming back. They're obviously hoping to get more from Otani in that role this year. Uh, but, you know, Stripling, you know, is sort of – of the same cloth as all of those guys. And, you know, they've had, you know, depth problems in that rotation for, you know, a number of years now. So Stripling, if he's healthy, will probably get opportunities just because there's, there are openings and opportunities to be had there. There's a cast of, you know, you can rattle off seven or eight guys, but probably only five of them at a time will be healthy. And when Stripling is uh, ready to take the ball, he'll probably get it there. And he should, you know, he's he wasn't very good last year with the Dodgers, but he's shown flashes before of being a uh, being an effective starter. And you know, I would imagine his ADP is going to go up from where it was because it looked like he was the you know eighth or ninth starter with the Dodgers, and now he's got a clearer opportunity with the Angels. But there's a uh, there's some reason to be interested there. And you mentioned uh, Ray uh, Garrett Cole didn't sign in Los Angeles. He did sign with the Yankees, and it looked like they were shaping up to be very competitive uh, as far as their pitching staff goes. But a huge blow with the news that James Paxton's probably going to miss four to six months because of a back problem. I believe I read that his uh, his surgery involved removing a disc from his back, which is <laughs> it just sounds bad, and I'm sure it is bad, especially for a pitcher given the loads required. Uh, what do you think the Yankees are going to do without James Paxton in the in the fold as far as uh, their pitching rotation for 2020. They're better positioned than most to lose somebody like this, uh, someone of Paxton's caliber, but obviously it's still a blow. You know, so Cole Tanaka, Severino remain the one, two, three. You can quibble about where Paxton would have fit among those three, but, you know, those guys are now the one, two, three. They held Hap all winter even though um, – you know, they didn't seem to really have a spot for him. So in terms of playing time, Hap is probably the beneficiary there. And then after that, you know, Domingo German will be back at some point. Jordan Montgomery is coming back from injury. Jonathan Saga is maybe somebody who picks up some of the innings for uh, the beginning of the season here while both uh, German and Chap, uh, excuse me, uh, Paxton are out, so there's the uh, you know th- that's probably the list of candidates, and you know at any given time they could also go back to the Chad Green opener thing they were doing last year too. They've got a you know very deep uh, arsenal of bullpen uh, options, and with the 26 man roster, maybe the bullpen day is something they can go to you know once every couple of turns through the rotation or something. And Ray, you mentioned bullpen days and mixing and matching and stuff, and I, I thought there was some real interesting coverage at BaseballHQ.com of Emilio Pagan of Tampa. Uh, we had a facts and flukes performance validation analysis by Bob Burgers, one a terrific a- analyst, uh, he, and he had an interesting take, I thought, on Emilio Pagan's very good 2019 season and how it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to have a very good 2020 season, not because of his skills, which are absolutely elite, but because of usage and the way that Tampa manages things down there. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, Bob had a good take on this. I know Doug Dennis has already commented on this bullpen in his bullpen buyer's guide. I think I even wrote about this in a um, GM's office column back in December. It's fascinating because, like you said, you know, if you look at Pagan's profile, there's there's not a bad thing you can say about him. Every skill metric is closer worthy. He was effective in the role last year. There's, you know, if you just looked at his stat line, his baseball forecaster box, his player link page, wherever you want to look, if you just looked at, put the blinders on and looked at the player himself, you, you would say, oh, 40 saves. This is fantastic. The, the actual worst thing you can say about him is, what is to, the worst? The only way you can say something worse about him is to look at the rest of that bullpen, where Diego Castillo it was super effective last year, and at this time last year we were all talking about Jose Alvarado was the closer who also comes highly skilled, and he missed a bunch of time last year for non-injury reasons, as I recall. But he's back, and he's a lefty, which is now another wrinkle with the three batter minimum, and you know how they want to play matchups, and then on top of it. This, 
On top of those three guys, they brought in Nick Anderson at the trade deadline last year from Miami, who actually has the best skills of all of these guys, even better than Pagan. So when you've got a manager in Kevin Cash who who sort of changed horses in the closer derby a couple of times last year, rode the hot hand or rode the fresh hand or whatever it was, any one of these guys on another team would be, you know, clear 35 save candidates. Here, it might be none of them get more than 20, but three of them might get 15. Yeah, I think that's how it looks like it's going to shape up. But Pagan led the team in saves last year, and the team had 46 saves. And we've had BaseballHQ.com research that strongly suggests that you can expect roughly half the games to of the half of the wins to generate saves. And Tampa definitely looks like a 90 win team. So you're looking at 45 to 50 saves. And ordinarily, in a in a standard bullpen, you'd expect one closer to get 80 percent of them, which would be around 40. But they had 46 last year. Pagan only got 20. And and they had 11 relievers that got saves for the Rays last year, and nine of them are still in the organization. So there's a few ones and twos scattered in there, not mentioning Castillo, Alvarado, Pagan, and Nick Anderson, as you mentioned. And it looks like Tampa is committed to a mixing and matching reliever usage pattern, and it worked for them last year, and I don't see any reason to suspect that they're going to say, you know what, let's go back to the 7th inning, 8th inning, ninth inning model that used to be the model for everybody and is no longer the, the model for them. 11 guys on that team got a save last year? That is a staggering number. It really is, and it just indicates that they're being smart in the way that a lot of people like us have always said bullpen should be run. If you've got a three-run lead against a weak team and it's the seven, eight, nine hitters coming up, you don't need Emilio Pagan to get those guys out. Just take one of the guys who hasn't thrown for a couple of days, let him go in, get a save, and we'll keep our powder dry for when we do need Emilio Pagan in a one-run lead in the seventh with two, three, four, five coming up. And we all think that that's the way it should be done, and, and if we play Sam and, and uh, those kind of games where it actually matters, that's a model for success. But as far as rotisserie style or most uh, head-to-head points leagues games, we want to know who's getting the saves, and it doesn't look like it necessarily is going to be Emilio Pagan. Although he'll get some, he won't be in that elite tier where you're counting on 35 or 40. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, you know, the... the, the once you break the sort of cookie cutter bullpen model like that, there are pro- I can only imagine the level of analysis and strategy that the, the the Rays are putting into this. Whether it's you know not just lefty lefty righty matchups or the most critical spot in the game, which is the you know using your best reliever in the seventh if that's when the game's on the line, which is always the you know the cry we've been making for years. But on top of that, now they can start looking at. You know, before a series starts, looking at which reliever matches up with better parts of the lineup and make a different call to go to Pagan or Castillo or Anderson when the bottom third of the order is up because those guys can't touch the Anderson's heat or Pagan's slider or whatever particular uh, you know pitch pitch level data, stackhouse data they're looking at to figure out where to best deploy those relievers against pinch hitters or if they're particularly worried about keeping a speedy guy off base to start a rally to one run game or you know whatever it is there's you know what when you when you have this richness of assets like they have they can i mean don't get me wrong there's almost no wrong way to do this any one of these guys could close as we were on a nightly basis as we talked about it but you can just you can use them based on whatever metric whatever data point is telling you is the optimal play on that day Right, and when you look at the list of Baseball HQ's projected saves, uh, at the top of the table we have pitchers like Brad Hand and uh, Roberto Osuna, and they're going to be in the mid to high 30s. And our projection for Emilio Pagan, and frankly, given the conversation we've just had, I think the 24 we're projecting is probably looks more like a ceiling than a floor. And typically when we're looking at what kind of closer we want to slot in and what kind of tier, the first consideration is... What is the ceiling? What is the floor? And where where do I want to be on either side? Now, I don't mind a 20-save floor, but I don't want to pay for a 30-save ceiling in a situation where it sure doesn't look super promising that he's going to get there. Yeah, that's right. And we'll probably learn a little more as the spring goes on and refine that projection a little bit. 24 doesn't horrify me because, uh, you know, the ones he got last year, he was pretty much, you know, they did sort of to contradict our earlier argument, that did sort of make him the guy in the second half. 
but you know Alvarado wasn't around for a lot of the second half. Anderson was you know new to the org, and you know they were sort of figuring out what they had there. So you know past performance does not guarantee future results, etc. But I, did, I understand why we're pro- projecting the most saves for Pagan. But to your point, you know how many more he has than the next guy, or what the spread is, is is certainly a a, a fair question for debate. And not that it applies in an American League only context, but while we're just talking about closers in general, currently Edwin Diaz is the 96th closer overall, and Pagan is the 99th by um, by minimum uh, draft position. So that's the earliest they're getting taken. It seems to me uh, of the two, I'd rather have Diaz f- for a number of reasons, but mostly because if he takes over the role, the Mets have shown a proclivity for letting one guy have all the saves, and if that to me again that creates a ceiling that I like as well as a floor that I can live with. I think that's right. I think the, uh, you know, even dating back to, you know, to go with off the field factors, even dating back to the, uh, the cost that the Mets paid to acquire Diaz. I think there's a organizational imperative for him to stay in that role if he's pitching well enough to have it. And that's sort of the diametric opposite of what we were talking about is how, how the Rays approach this problem. Ray, this has been great. Uh, your first appearance as a, well, actually it isn't your first appearance in general as a as an American League analyst. Uh, I know you've pitched in in the past, but uh, you're the guy now. Uh, speaking of uh, the, the go to guy for this season at Baseball HQ Radio, and before we go, I want to ask you about a change this season at Baseball HQ. The first pitch forums. Uh, you guys aren't doing the traditional spring tour that has been the the uh, plan in years past, but you've replaced it with an even bigger single event. It's called First Pitch Florida. Give us the story. A lot of my time at the moment, and the sort of the backstory is that you know while the the, the multi city spring tour was a lot of fun, uh, it was also a lot of work and the travel of you know sometimes three weekends in February and March at you know peak season was a little. Uh, got a little grading over time and really the from a business point of view the story is that those those events were they were doing okay but they weren't growing we tried a whole bunch of cities and moved it around over the course of four or five years and never really found a a a combination that was working the way we wanted it to meanwhile our fall first pitch arizona conference has been growing like gangbusters the last few years um and just shows no signs of stopping so what we decided to do was basically clone or at least uh you know, create a derivative of the first pitch arizona event and throw it in florida in the spring and we're doing first pitch florida down in st petersburg february 28th and march 1st it's a a weekend-long event it starts on friday evening uh and runs through Saturday and Sunday. The patterned after Arizona in the sense that, like, in the morning, we're going to be in conferences and talking about players and strategies in the upcoming season. In the afternoons, we're going out to ball games, and in the evenings, we're coming back and having drafts, both drafts that the attendees can participate in, and also uh, we're actually hosting labor down there this year. So uh, Friday night is one labor draft, Saturday night is the other one, and we actually added a mixed auction labor event on Sunday afternoon too. So there'll be there'll be drafting going on all weekend. Sirius XM is coming down to cover the labor drafts. Attendees will have the opportunity to draft their own teams, and We'll see a couple of ball games, and we'll uh, we'll immerse everyone in the coming season. To have everyone, you know, by Sunday night or Monday morning, when everyone's heading to the airport, we're, we want everyone, you know, charging back home to, uh, you know, not can't wait to draft because they're fully prepared. That's sort of the objective. And speaking of preparation, I th- one of the things that jumped out at me when I was looking at the at the list of things that were going on at First Pitch Florida is at First Pitch Arizona, when we get together, one of the main topics of discussion is what's going to go on in actual drafts that are taking place and what's going to be the ADP situation. But when you're talking about it in late October, early November, it's a lot of it is speculation and conjecture and, frankly, just guesswork. But here at First Pitch Florida, we're going to be in a situation where there have been hundreds of drafts that have already taken place in all kinds of contexts. So we're going to have a much clearer idea of what the market looks like, which creates a much greater opportunity to d- discuss where the market opportunities are, where the market dangers are, where the cautions are, where the optimism and, optimism and pessimism ought to be. Because of the timing of it, I think the information is going to be of a much higher quality if you're thinking about using the information to apply to your own drafts. Yeah, that's 100% right, and that's why I say it's not a 
you know, this is not a clone of uh, First Pitch Arizona. It's sort of a, you know, a, a cousin or something. But th- that's exactly the reason is, you know, if you look at the programs we've put together, you know, what you described is exactly right. And that we're, you know, a lot of what we do in Arizona in the fall is sort of, sort of you get a lot of people's first takes on what's going to happen in the coming year. And then the ADPs start developing and, you know, come spring, you know, we've got sort of revised or better answers. So we're going to have a chance to go back and look at those revised or better answers and talk about the marketplace and, you know, with it more written in ink than in pencil and, as you say, figure out where to exploit it. Uh, another good example of that is we've, you know, in the fall event in Arizona, you know, one of our staple programs is the Fact and Fluke panel where we sort of take performances from the previous previous season and you know have a bunch of analysts to, to debate what's real about them and what's not and what the trend line is for the player and then a lot of times the, the analyst doing in those presentations is like i said sort of giving their first take or preparing their take for that session uh, we're spinning that concept sort of on its head since all the analysts have now done their full offseason the work i'm on a panel down there for in florida for instance where we've asked a bunch of people who developed their own projections, like uh, me doing the HQ projections, uh, Derek Carty, um, Todd Zola, I think is on the panel, uh, three or four people like that who do their do projections for themselves or for their websites, and asking them, rather than giving them fat fluke topics, we're asking them, hey, what were the toughest projections for you this year? Where did you really struggle? Let's put those guys on the board. Let's talk about them in some detail, because those are likely to be places where either there's difference of opinion, or we finally we might come to a consensus that's different from the marketplace, and that becomes you know the, the kind of exploitable opportunity you're talking about. So that's what I'm really fired up about. Yeah, that's an interesting topic, isn't it, Ray? Because I know that I and many other people, as part of their prep for the season, I take four or five sets of projections, the ones I trust, the guys you mentioned, Derek and Todd, and some of the others, of course, Baseball HQ. And I know some people just average them out, but what I'm looking for is the outliers, one from the other. Why is why is Todd way higher on a certain player than Baseball HQ or way lower? Because that's the kind of guy I think we need to dig into and, and settle in our own minds because... If you're bidding against somebody who's relying on a single set of projections, you may have an opportunity to understand why you should go higher or why you should let the let the player go to that other guy. And I, I, to to think of the idea of these guys talking about the players they found difficult is really interesting from that point of view. Yeah, I think there's you know I, I've played around with that um, averaging the projections sort of thing in the past before I was. Doing the HQ ones, I would do that a lot for for my own purposes and go out and get them from other sources. But you you hit on the, sort of the problem with that is you end up with a sort of watered down consensus point of view. And what you really want, and what I what I'm hoping to shake out of this panel and out of the whole weekend is in general is you want you know as you're prepping for your drafts more and more. What I'm looking for is I'm looking for the places where I want to take a stand, where I'm willing to say, forget the ADP, I want this guy, I'll go as early as I need to to get him, or I'm not touching this guy, or I know this guy isn't starting now, but he's going to be starting in a month, or this guy is eventually going to be the closer in X by May 15th or whatever. I want, you know, I, I, I want to know what my bold positions are, and then I'll, I'll work around those and build my draft plan around those. But if, you, if you're averaging projections, you know, I, th- there's merit to that. But I, I feel like you just will never find those bold positions because you can't find, sort of by definition, you can't find bold takes in, a, uh, in an aggregated average of uh, projection systems. I think so too. And before I let you go, Ray, the the draft night drafts for the attendees, are those drafts, they're going to be played out, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, we're going to, we, I actually need to reach out in the next week or so to the attendees and uh Figure out what for you know what what interest there is in different formats, but uh, you know, hey, if we play them out in Arizona in October, we got to play them out in, when you're drafting in Florida in March. There's no excuse anymore, right? Exactly right. Uh, that's first pitch Florida, February twenty eighth to March first. It's in St. Pete. Uh, there's a couple of ball games included, a couple of spring training games. I know the Tigers and Yankees is one of them, and then the other one is TBA. I, it's uh, Baltimore and Philadelphia on Sunday. All right, so uh, a couple of spring training games to to take in as well, part of the First Pitch Florida experience, February 28th to March 1st, St. Petersburg. You can get information at baseballhq.com slash first-pitch-florida. Ray, thanks a million for helping us out about First Pitch Florida, but of course also about the American League news. Talk to you next week. Absolutely. Talk to you next week, PD. 
Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our new man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our Baseball HQ commentary for this week. The three-minute warning is next on Baseball HQ Radio. And the pitch. Swung on in a high drive center field. Jones is going back. He turns. He looks. And that ball is history. Josh Hamilton has hit his fourth home run of the ball game. All of them two-run shots. Eight RBIs for Hamilton. And four home runs. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Alex Becky starts his frequent flyer comment next week, and this week I'm debuting a new commentary, the three-minute warning. And to start us off, I want to tell you about player picks I made way back in last November. This season, BaseballHQ.com has decided not to run Master Notes as part of the BaseballHQ.com Friday e-newsletter. I'm still going to have my commentary to end our podcast, but fitting in with the change, I'm aiming a lot shorter, three minutes or less every week. And to help me stick to my guns, I'm calling this commentary the three-minute warning. This is a slight nod to another sports league, the Canadian Football League which issues its time warning before the end of each half three minutes from the end rather than the two in the NFL. And the CFL stops its clock after every play inside three minutes, a very smart feature for comebacks that has been adopted by the XFL in its first season. But I digress. Ready? Let's start. This first week, my three-minute warning will report on some of my picks for Peter Kreutzer's annual magazine, The Fantasy Baseball Draft Guide 2020. Every November, Peter asks a bunch of fantasy baseball analysts for their picks and pans. And for the next three minutes, I'm going to report the picks I had that no other analysts also picked. Remember, I made these picks in November, so don't hold them against me. Willie Adamas did not greatly advance in skills, but he's still just 24 and he hits the ball hard. A little more loft in his swing could help him boost his home runs into the mid-20s. Tucker Barnhart had a horrible first half in 2019, but after he came back from an IL stint, showed more patience and an adjusted swing that led to an OPS over 800. You can bid on Charlie Blackman as a good four-category player, but let someone else pay for 2015 steals levels. G-Man Choi was brutal versus left-handed pitching, but a very good streamer against right-handers. And remember, Tampa uses such players very effectively. Hunter Dozier had a weird season with wildly different month-by-month numbers, but overall I like an 870 OPS, a 25% K rate and 9% walks, and $17 in 5x5 value. Now I'm hoping owners discount Dozier because of his slumpy runs and his poor September. I liked Mitch Hanniger to bounce back for some of his fluky injuries, but he had a second surgery recently and will not open the season with the big club, and there's no solid timeline for his return. Ramon Laureano was on his way to a 30-20 season before an injury and still finished 24-13 in just 481 plate appearances. The concern here is that after returning from his injury, he only had one stolen base attempt. Josh Rojas came to Arizona in the Granke trade, and he scuffled, but he had a 10-23 OPS across AA and AAA with 23 homers and 33 bags, and he should be on the good side of a platoon at second in Arizona. Carlos Santana, a good consolation prize if you don't get Jose Abreu, especially in OBP leagues. Santana, 367 on base over the last 10 years. Dansby Swanson was near elite in a lot of StatCast hard-hit categories, keeping company with Raphael Devers, George Springer, and Freddie Freeman. He was on his way to a 2010 season before he got hurt last year, and in a deep year for shortstops this year, Swanson could be off the radar and a very real get late in the draft. And now, the pitcher I alone recommended in the draft guide, Emilio Pagan. Pagan takes elite skills into 2020 and looks like the clear closer in Tampa, but his price will be discounted because of legitimate concerns that the Rays will doink around with tactical matchups in those high leverage situations that will get Pagan into the games earlier sometimes, costing him save opportunities, but those same incidents could get him some vulture wins. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I'll have the three-minute warning here at Baseball HQ Radio every Friday. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 7th. 
Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number two of the 2020 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, our Market Watch commentators, Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or iTunes Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your pods. And if they'll let you, please leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners. It helps new listeners find us. And getting new listeners helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. Remember that promo code at BaseballHQ.com, Patrick, all capital letters for 10% off. And take a look at First Pitch Florida. We'll be back again on Tuesday with a doozy, a Tuesday tout feature interview with Fantasy Sports Writing Association 2019 Best Baseball Writer, Ariel Cohen from Rotographs and Fantasy Pros and Sportsline. That's Ariel Cohen on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you on Tuesday. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.